in this episode with Lee Murray. You know, the Asian community is one of the biggest growing, largest, fastest growing communities in New Zealand. We have a lot of, you know, new Asian immigrants. I mean, I'm born here, my mum's born here, but, you know, there are a lot of new immigrants and they're facing lots of these these things, you know. Mm. There's this prejudice around our food and the way we speak and, you know, the, the way we drive, you know, can we back a trailer, you know, <laughs> all of those stereotypical things. Actually, I remember at age 10 reading Gone with the Wind and just an epic story. And I said to my dad, I'd really like to be a writer one day. And he said, you know, you should probably get a real job first. Um, so I went on and became a research scientist because I needed a real job first because he said, you're never going to make a living as a writer. And you know what? Dad was right. It's really, 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 really hard to make a living as a writer, especially in New Zealand. I mean, I have yet to make minimum wage as a writer, having written full-time for, um, full-time for 15 years. Uh, okay. And sometimes, you know, I'm doing 60-hour weeks, and so it's, mm. you know, I could go to the grocery store and, and, and earn more probably. You, I don't think you can regret your life choices to a certain extent. You know, they are what they are, and, and it's to make the most of... Of what yeah. they what they are, you know. Why don't you do it? Why don't you stop talking about it? Why don't you stop talking about writing and just jolly well do it? How long you were talking about doing it for? You know why you were talking about it? What was driving you towards wanting to do that? But also, what was preventing you from that? Yeah, uh, that's probably a really good question, and I think it's probably me that whole self doubt imposter syndrome. But in my head, I kind of just, I write the beginning often, I write the end, I know kind of where it's going, I might have some major plot points, but basically it's magic. It kind of happens when I sit down and it just, it's magic. I still think it's magic. I still don't know how I do it. And I am a USA Today bestselling author, but that is for one week on the USA Today charts. You know, that is one week. Um, of sales and not forever sales. So for once, if you're a five-time New York Times best-selling author, five times you've got on that one-week list. Um, it doesn't it doesn't represent necessarily of sales across the rest of the year. You know, it might be release day sales or something like that. So I think this is kind of well, yes, best-selling is great. Don't don't you know? I'm not knocking that at all. But I think people don't quite understand that actually writing. You know, even very successful writers may be really struggling to, to make ends meet financially, you know, because we get maybe a dollar for every book sold.
So Leith, thank you for joining us today and uh, giving up some time to come and talk to us about uh, your life's work. Um, I, and if I can, I'd like to start with that question actually of how would you summarize what your life's work is? Ah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I call myself a writer. Um, so I guess that's what, where I think all my life's work is. Um, and I hope that people will remember me as a kind writer. Um, at kindness is kind of my, my, you know, my underlying personal mantra, my ethic. And so when I'm remembered in the future, I hope people will say, she was that horror writer and she was really kind. So, yeah. Nice, nice. All right, well, so as you know, this um, podcast is about life, work and legacy. And so in relation to your life's work, what I'd like to be able to do now really is maybe go back in time to uh, when you were younger to try and create some context about who, you know, how you became a writer, because um, that's not all you've done. So it'd be interesting to explore what's, what's gone on in the past that's brought you to where you are today. Um, so if you could just talk to me about your, maybe your childhood, where, where you were raised, um, the circumstances under which you were raised, and what kind of character were you hmm. as a young Lee? um okay so um I'm nearly 60 now so um so I'm old I was born in um Pataruru uh and I am a third generation Chinese New Zealander on one side um and sort of some Welsh and Spanish and European you know English um um uh, heritage on the other side, going back to, mm, I think, the late 1700s, so some early early settlers here in New Zealand, um, colonisers in New Zealand, I should say. Um, and so, um, and I, I think, to be honest, I was kind of one of those first sort of mixed marriage um, children of Asian and European descent, so I didn't see anyone really like me, apart from my brothers and sisters, and there were four of us. Um, so we so we lived in, in Taupo, um, Whangarei, um, Dad moved around, he was in the bank, um, and um, I guess, yeah, as a sort of mixed race kitty, you know, I just didn't see anybody like myself, but I had great siblings, we had great fun, you know, Dad was a brilliant storyteller himself. Um, he, uh, you know, we'd go on road trips to Wellington to see my mother's family and all the way dad would entertain us with these little stories about, you know, well, he used to tell these funny stories about my little cousin <laughs> who, who had missed the car and wanted to come on this trip with us and she's running along behind us and oops, she's leapt over a cow and now she's running through a house, you know, great fun little stories setting up all these barriers to um, to the to the protagonist, which was my little cousin. I don't know if she's if she knows this. I must tell her sometime. <laughs> um, and um, and to me, actually, now that I look back, he was just telling us how to tell a story. So you have a character who wants something, a motivation. You know, I want to get with you and go on this trip. And then, as the story proceeds, you throw up these barriers and see how the character will test themselves and how they will, um, you know, get around these barriers in order to achieve their goals. And that's just 
great storytelling. That's just storytelling, you know. And so we would jump in and say, oh, no, Dad, look, there's some bumblebees or something. You know, we would throw in our own little ideas of what might happen next because that's kind of what storytelling is about is what, what next, what if, what if this happens, what if that happens, how will they respond? And so, um, so my child was full of stories and how to tell stories. I didn't realise he was teaching us how to tell stories back in the day. And he, and he told great stories. Dad, Dad died in 2020 um, at the beginning of the pandemic, so it was really tough. But he, he, he was great at reading to us every night. He read to us, you know, um, and um, he did all the best, the best voices, <laughs> and he made up great, great, you know, great stories of his own, just really fun things that kids, you know, kids – Love, like he would tell us stories about two little frogs who lived at the bottom of Dip Road in Fongare, which has a sort of gully. And for people who know Fongare, and, um, and at the bottom there was this little creek. And he would tell these stories about two little little frogs called Horace and Aristotle, um, who lived in. I didn't know who Horace and Aristotle were those in those days, but they were really dumb, these frogs. They were really <laughs> a bit stupid. They would do stupid things. They were a little bit like sort of Ernie and Bert characters, you know, um, from Sesame Street. Yeah. You know, one was, you know, a bit straight-laced and we should do this, but they were both pretty stupid. Um, but in the end, they always made it out, you know, out of this predicament. You know, like even when you're a little frog, crossing the road is a tricky thing to do, right? And so they would... They would be, you know, not looking at the traffic and then one of them would pull the other one back. Don't jump yet, you know, there's a car coming. Those kinds of things. Well, how are we going to get, you know, up, up? How are two little frogs going to get up on the counter at the dairy to get an ice cream? That kind of really, like, simple problems um, and how they use teamwork to sort of sort it out. And I, I love those stories. I still, they still, they almost, yeah. <laughs> and he would tell stories about Professor Morgan. His name was Morgan. So, of course, he, he put himself in the story. He was <laughs> Professor Morgan who invented amazing things in his garage out of ice cream contain, container lids and, you know, bits of sticks and <laughs> screws and bits of junk. And, um and then his amazing Zizbert machine, Zizbert, 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 it, it made that sound when it moved along, it would, could do all sorts of things. It could go under the water and it could fly and it could go into space. And, and he would tell us these adventures about this inventive chap called Professor Morgan. Um, yeah, so, so my, story my storytelling life started with my dad, I think. Um, and perhaps... And I, and I have to say that now my storytelling life has progressed to my mum. Right. Um, because my mum, of course, she's a sort of quiet little Asian lady, but absolutely a powerhouse and very intelligent. And, um, and now I'm, you know, her heritage kind of got sort of stepped back in our, in our childhood because, you know, we were Kiwi. We were living in New Zealand and trying to fit in and belong. And so now I'm looking back to those stories of my mum's and asking her questions and finding out more about her heritage so I can put it in my horror writing. Um, and so so it's kind of, you know, I think as I've progressed, I've sort of come around to sort of thinking about all of those aspects of myself and not just that very Kiwi upbringing that I had, you know, with sure. bare feet and ice creams and summers and, you know, the, 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 the things that we did as, as children. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. Sounds sounds amazing. Can I can I ask you? I mean, we'll, we'll come back to your your mum's side of things because that's like you said, it's featuring in your writing, and you've written about um, you know being an Asian horror writer. Um, you know, as I've researched before this interview. So if we can, we'll come back to that. I just want to go back to your dad a second. What what drove you know, what drove him to tell those stories or where did his story, storytelling ability come from? Was it just a natural thing or did... Yeah, I think it might have been a natural thing for Dad. I mean, he came from a family of teachers and so, you know, and he had oh, thought right. at one point he might be a teacher. Okay. Um, but um, he ended up going to the Navy and into the bank and then he was in safety. He did lots of things, lots of different... He jumped around and mm. did a few, few things. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, I think... I think he just maybe was a bit of a natural. But, I mean, everything is story, isn't it? Our whole lives are stories. You know, we sit around the table, we tell our stories of our day. I mean, I think everything is stories somehow. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, I was just yeah. thinking about his, his, his imagination, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's well, quite special, really. It, well, I guess it is, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. I, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to have had that opportunity. I, mm. I think. You know, comedians are a bit the same, aren't they? They sort of take a, li a real-life thing and sort of adapt it to make a, a fun anecdote or story and look at the, mm. the underlying truth. And I think that um, so perhaps funny people and very intelligent funny people probably have that storytelling sort of gene as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so you said there, was, there were four of you. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got siblings. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what's the makeup of that? Brothers, sisters? I'm or? the eldest. You're yeah, the eldest? I'm the eldest. We've got two boys in the middle and uh, and I have a baby sister as well. Right, yeah. right. Okay. And so what was – I mean, you've, you've touched on the fact that you you didn't see anyone else that looked like you around. What was what was that like growing up back then, being mixed-raced? Was that um, difficult? For you? Did yeah, it cause issues? I think mum and dad did a great job of looking out for us, you know, and and making us feel like we were loved and it didn't really matter. And um, and if, you know, and it's just those occasional things, you know, the 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 racist comments and things like that. And um, yeah, I think mum and dad did a really good job. We didn't know. We didn't really sort of know how different we were, if you like, mm. yeah. uh, until, you know, later on you sort of start to put things together and just feel a little bit different. I think, you know, when it comes to reading, though, I didn't see any little Kiwi Asian girls in anything at all, ever. Mm. It's hard not to see yourself in writing. Representation really, really matters. And I talk a lot about that a little bit in my poetry collection, Tortured Willows, um, because, you know, when the movie uh, Mao's Last Dancer came out, um, my mother took me to see it. She said, you have to come and see this movie. And, and I said, okay. So I, I went along with her to watch it and there was this tiny little clip of a little toddler, I don't know, three years old, using a set of bellows to keep the fire going in this little hut in a village somewhere in China. Now, my mother is born in New Zealand. She was born in Christchurch. But as a young girl, her, if she went back to, to China um, in the late 40s, so um, after the war years, and, um, and she, she said that was her role. 
that was her job as a tiny little girl before she was five years old was to 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 keep keep the bellows going to keep the fire going um, when she was living in you know living she, when she visited China um, she was one of nine children so um, yeah that representation really really matters now my mum I think went to see that movie three times that week that it came out you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just to see that little clip because that was her yeah. um, and it's not even a it's not even a movie about New Zealand you know yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think we really do need stories about ourselves I mean maybe that's why dad put himself in in the story about you know Professor Morgan and his Zisbert because dad was a bit of an inventor he did make things in the garage you know he would be pottering around in there he could fix a bike with, you know, a piece of, you know, the tab off a Coke can or something. <laughs> you know, he was full of great inventions. So um, so maybe that was it. Maybe Dad wanted to see himself a bit more in a, in a, in a story, so he put himself in there, you know, and said these things are possible. You know, we can do things just if we just use our ingenuity. So, Yeah. I don't know really where I'm going with this, but I'm I'm intrigued and 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 curious. That's just my nature. So I and I'm also maybe fairly ignorant. So forgive me. But the, the representation thing, it's maybe something because if you're not a, a minority, you just take for granted, and you don't really think about that. Mm. How big how big a thing is that? It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. You know, it's interesting. I I think about I. I I think back to when I was young and my mother didn't really take us to the doctor. Dad used to take us to the doctor because I think mum, as a little Asian woman, got this, well, there, there, dear, this is not how we do it. But dad, as a European man with, you know, a background in health science and things like that, he, he, they listened to him, you know, they listened to him. So, so there's just these little things that you do, you know, um, that that he would do in order to, like I have to look back and say I did have a lot of privilege just because my dad was European. And and it's a wonderful thing to have these different cultures in your, in your family. But for my mother, for example, she eloped to marry my dad um, because you didn't, you didn't marry a European boy, you know, you just, you did it, you didn't. And um, in those days, she, she was very brave. She was very brave. She, she risked being ostracized from her family. Um, and she had an arranged marriage organized for her and which she didn't follow through with. Um, and he's a lovely man, but it just wasn't for her. You know, um, I've met him since he is a lovely man, but he's just wasn't for my mum. And so you know, so for her to have done that, and believe me, she's, she's you know, five foot tall, you know, no, she's five foot tall on her tippy toes. And so, um, you know, for her to just be so courageous to take the stand and say, I'm, I'm going to marry who I choose to, it was a big thing. So, you know, there are these small things. They're small things, but they're massive. They're massive. Mm -hmm. So, how? So yes, so I think mum and dad protected me a lot from that. Um, I, I have the privilege of having a dad who, who you know, could walk around as a, as a European man, and man as well, not a little Asian lady, um, who, who just gave me that access into that space, I guess. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, we, we, I mean, we're talking about a, a different time, really, when yes, your mum chose to do are. that. Again, just, you know, interested in your thoughts. How different is it now? It feels different to me, but then I'm ignorant of, of this stuff. I'm not really yeah, experiencing it I, from I, the same perspective. So Yeah, I think COVID was interesting um, because there was just this, a lot of rhetoric around, you know, the China virus. Mm. Um, and so if you look like me, that's that's a tricky space to be in. And I have lots of colleagues and friends from different places in the world, Asian diaspora people, you know, friends, who really faced a lot of prejudice. So there was kind of a lot of anti-Asian sentiment online and that kind of thing. I did feel that. Mm. I did feel that. Um, you know, so, so, so yes, there are some things that have exacerbated that. But also, from my perspective, perhaps that may have made a big difference to me because my um, anthology, Black Cranes, which I co-edited with uh, Genevieve Flynn, an Australian, um, Malaysian, Chinese, Australian. She, that particular work just exploded, you know. We were so, the response to it was incredible. It's full of stories by um, Asian diaspora women um, writing horror. And, um, and, and I think the fact that there was this anti-Asian sentiment worldwide because of the, uh, because of the vaccine, um, because of the pandemic, um, there was also this response where we want to know more. Why is there this this sentiment towards Asian people? And and it was a great place. And horror is very subversive, transgressive. It's it's effective. You know, it's the it, it makes you feel things. Um, and so it's a great place to explore those kinds of things. And in a sort of safety, because when you put yourself in fiction, there's that layer of safety. It's you, you're writing, you're writing your perspectives, but you're writing them from the point of view of your characters. So there's this little element of safety. But also there's this wonderful opportunity to say, well, look, there are other ways through this. Because the thing about horror is that you, you're approaching it as, you know, we're looking at demons, we're looking at the things that concern us, that cause fear. Um, but when you see the resolution of the story, you know, even if it doesn't work out for the character, you think, well, I won't do that. <laughs> you know, there's a way through, there's at least some kind of resolution. Um, and I think particularly if you think about pa pandemic, um, the pandemic, if you've read any zombie fiction you should have known what was going to happen in the pandemic you know there would be people that would break the curfew there would be you know the the lockdowns there would be you know people who would deny the science there would be all of that we we knew we know that because speculative fiction and horror is really good for sort of looking forward and saying what are we going to be facing um and looking at the things that really frighten us so um so kind of that's how I sort of developed into. Yeah. I don't know where I got off. I've got off track. Oh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> so well, it was it was about you know things different these days. Yeah. Um, I, and I think maybe I'm taking. A, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe maybe it's different now, but it's still it's still a thing. It's still an issue, isn't it? Still yeah, I think present. it's still a thing. Um, yeah. and it, it is still a thing. Yeah. Um, yes. 
Yes, it yeah. is still a thing, you know. Um, but that said, I think we've made great progress. Yeah. And any time you make great progress, you often get a bit of pushback, don't you? So um, so I'm, you know, very excited. And, 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 of course, we have a lot of, you know, the Asian community is one of the biggest growing, largest, fastest growing communities in New Zealand. We have a lot of, you know, new Asian immigrants. I mean, I'm born here. My mum's born here. But, you know, there are a lot of new immigrants and they're facing lots of these these things, you know. Mm. There's this prejudice around our food and the way we speak and, you know, the, the way we drive, you know, can we back a trailer, you know. <laughs> All of those stereotypical things, you know. Are you a dragon mum at school, you know. Are you one of those tiger mums that hovers around, you know. There are these kind of stereotypes and also... Um, you know, that whole, there's, there's a lot of stereotypes around Asian women, you know, the sexualizing of Asian women, you know, you're a geisha or you're a, you know, concubine or some kind of sexualized person, or you will be submissive and, um, and lie down and just kind of accept, you know, be a doormat or subsume yourself into the service of everybody else. Um, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of tropes around it. Um, in fact, Black Cranes came about because two Asian girls. So Genevieve and I were at, um, I was invited to Jeanacon in Australia as a, as a guest. And I turned up, conscientious Asian girl, I turned up early to the panel. And the only other person who was there early was this other conscientious Asian girl both writers of horror and I had heard about Genevieve in various circles because we we write horror which is unusual for Asian girls and um and she said oh we're both here early to the panel and so we got chatting about the very fact that we had you know fallen into that traditional trope of Asian girls being very hardworking and ethical and punctual and all of those things so we started talking about you know how we accepted those traditions and also rejected them in some ways. And who else was writing about those things? And that kind of was the kernel which started the ball rolling for Black Cranes. And that led to, after Black, the success of Black Cranes, we wrote Tortured Willows, which was a poetry collection, a, a collaborative poetry collection between four Asian women horror writers. And now Unquiet Spirit has just come out, which is a collection of essays by Asian women in horror looking at the spiritual aspects, you know, the, the fox spirits and the hungry ghosts and, um, you know, the various types of urban ghosts and monsters that impact our everyday lives because, of course, mythology, you know, there's a reason for those myths and ideas and faiths and, and, and um, ghosts stories, if you like, and why they're told, because they intend for us to behave in a certain way. So this group of Asian women horror writers have talked about how those impact on our everyday lives. Right. Wow. That's good. Thank you for that. Thank you. I, I, I'm interested in knowing more about your, your influence of your, of your mum, if we can go back to your childhood again, because I, I want to sort of move through how you got to writing. I could tell you a story about that, Steve, because actually I remember at age 10 reading Gone with the Wind and just an epic story. And I said to my dad, I'd really like to be a writer one day. And he said, you know, you should probably get a real job first. Um, so I went on and became a research scientist because I needed a real 
job first because he said, you're never going to make a living as a writer. And you know what? Dad was right. It's really, 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 really hard to make a living as a writer, especially in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, so that's the little story about that. So I did want to be a writer from very early on, and I was scribbling in notebooks and things. Um, But Dad, Mum and Dad said, you know, you should get a real job. And I think that's part of the thing too, isn't it? A lot of people say, well, what do you do? And you – Saying you're a writer, but yeah, but what do you really do? Because it's yeah. like a hobby. Yeah. It, it's not. It's not kind of people don't see it as a real job, um, especially if you if you're working from home. You know, you're working from home. You can't really be working, right? It's home. You know, we've changed our attitudes a little bit towards that since the pandemic. But before that, if you're working from home, you're not actually working, are you? You're just hanging out at home watching TV and you know. And sitting in your pajamas and eating chocolate biscuits, you know that's really <laughs> what you're doing, right? Um, and you know, so um, so I think there is the, a, an attitude towards writing, or perhaps it's that whole image of you know writers sitting away in an attic, you know, tap 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 tap, you know, very, and then suddenly the book is finished and the publicist comes along, and then suddenly there's champagne, you know, launches, which you know, it's just. It's not the reality of how yeah. of writing. So yeah, yes, yeah. Dad said, "Don't be a writer. There's no money in it." And yeah, for a few people that are doing very well, yes, there is. But for most of us, um, it's it's a really it's a really really hard job. Yeah. It's really yeah. Hard. So so if I if I can, because I, I can relate to to that. All my my I've got family members who can probably relate to that as well. Being told, you know, get a real job, just go get a real job. Um, how did you feel about that at that time? You know, being a, being a 10-year-old or a young young person, maybe early teens or whatever, wanting to write but but finding out that actually that's not a pathway for you. Did that – how did that shape you and what did you decide from there? Yeah, um, I just did – I was a good little girl and I did what my parents told me. Um, I trusted them. And I think – and I think in a lot of ways that, you know, they – they did. My parents did everything to give me the best possible life. They totally, totally did. Um, but maybe I wouldn't be the writer I am today if I hadn't taken that course through science and become a research scientist. And I did some management degree, and you know, um, and I think I think they shaped me. They shaped the way I think. I'm a logical thinker, and I know how to do research. You know, I can, I can find the information I need in order to write the thing I want to write. So that really formed me. And also, I write speculative. And so, you know, it's really great to be able to underpin your work with actual science and be able to read the science and say, this, you know, this might happen. This could, this is possible. So I think that, that that's been really helpful for informing my writing. Also, you know, science is methodical and there's a certain type of approach to it, which I rigor. There's a rigor to it. And writing, while, while it's creative, also has a kind of rigor to it. You know, there are some rules and you need to know those rules but and then you can break them. But there is a rigor to it. And so I think that I wouldn't be the writer I am today without having taken that, that course. So I don't regret it. Um, but you know, and I do believe Mum and Dad just simply said, "You need to, you need to, you need to um, get a proper job because you need to be able to look after yourself." So I think that they, they, that's a reasonable thing for parents to want for their children. Mm-hmm. They also wanted me to be Kiwi because being Asian, they understood, was not going to help me in New Zealand as much as in those days. 
you know, like I said, I'm nearly 60. So, so I didn't, I don't speak any, any Cantonese. My mother speaks two dialects of Cantonese, you know, uh, she speaks Cantonese and Hakka. And I, I can't speak a word, you know, I, I actually speak French fluently, but I don't speak any, any, um, any Chinese. And so I've lost a part of myself because, and I totally believe my parents thought that was in the best interests of me. You know, if I wanted to get ahead, I needed to speak, you know, strong English. I needed to integrate and assimilate with everybody here. And yet, and in doing that, I lost a part of myself. So they, you know, they did everything they could to give me the best life. So I'm not blaming them. But, you know, sometimes in doing that, we, we inadvertently sort of don't let people discover them, their, their own selves. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't... There's a consequence to everything, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, it is. And like you say, your parents have just got to make the choices with the knowledge that they've got and the understanding that they've got at that time that they feel is best Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. 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 So, so you were a, a good girl, you said, and you, you followed that pathway. So, so when you left or when you were going through school... What was your kind of thought process? What do I want to do? What am I going to, you know, obviously enjoyed writing, well, but you. Yeah, the whole Asian thing is, you know, you need to do science or you need to do medicine. That's very Asian, actually. And right. I don't think it was mum that put me, that put, I guess that might have been the whole, you know, move from blue collar to white collar type of thing from the 50s um, that came through my dad's family. Dad, dad was obviously a big influence on me. Um, but, um, so that, so I got an education. I mean, I think I was the first person in my family to get a degree. I had three. Um, and so that was a big deal. First woman, you know, um, as well, you know. So that, that, was, that was pretty something. So, and my mum didn't have that opportunity. She had to leave school when she was in sixth form. She was very bright. Um, and so for me, to have had that opportunity to, to get an education, that was huge. So, yeah, yeah. And, and so how did you choose what you were going to select for your, for your degrees and what, was, what were you thinking that you were going to go become? Yeah, exactly. I thought I was going to do medicine because that's exactly what my parents thought I should do, yeah, yeah. A, a, a little bit, a little bit. And I yeah. kind of just, yeah, I just kind of, well, I was, I was doing really well in, in school. I was very lucky. I had great teachers and, and great support. So... Um, actually, I remember in the fifth form, back in the fifth form when we had school certificate, um, I, I did six subjects and I did three art subjects and three science subjects, math and science and what have you. And I said, well, whichever one I get the best results for, I'll go either arts or I'll go sciences. And I got exactly the same results on both <laughs> sides. So. <laughs> so, you know, right. got A's for all across, you know, so... Mm. It didn't, it, didn't, it didn't help me make a decision at all. And mum and dad were saying, you know, you should, if, you, if you've got a job in science or in, you know, in medicine or in the health sciences, you would have a job and then you can do this other stuff. So, again, they gave me the, the advice that they thought what would work for me. So, um, you know, I met my partner at university. Um, he was doing sciences. He's a, he's a PhD in physics and you know, software engineer, so I'm, so, you know, maybe I got something out of that. <laughs> He's my biggest supporter and, and sponsor. I mean, I couldn't be a writer without his support because financially it's really, I mean, I have yet to make minimum wage as a writer, having written full time for um, 
full time for 15 years. Uh, okay. And sometimes, you know, I'm doing 60 hour weeks. And so it's, mm. you know, I could go to, to the grocery store and, and, and earn more probably. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a, dis, it's a, it's a sacrifice and also a privilege to be able to write. Mm. Um, so I'm really grateful. So if I hadn't taken that course, would I be writing? Maybe not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then David's career has taken us all around the world. We've lived in in the United States. Um, we lived in England for a while. And we also lived in France for seven years. So I've had this wonderful opportunity to experience life in different places, which I might not have had. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm very, you, you, I don't think you can regret your life choices to a certain extent. You know, they are what they are. And. And it's to make the most of of yeah. what they what they are at the, you know at, yeah. as yeah. you go on. That's right. They're all building blocks, aren't they? Making yeah. you who you are yeah. today, and what you do today will make you who you are tomorrow. That kind of thing. Yeah, so, exactly. And that's and that's really what you know, we're trying to explore here with these with this podcast is really, you know, what was your journey? You know, so you've you've talked a little bit about that, and but you started to write properly. Maybe I'll call it that. Um, a, a little bit later in life. So your career before that, you were in. You worked as a scientist. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I, when we lived abroad. I was um, New Zealand Energy Advisor to the OECD. So, um, but but mostly I didn't because we have a, a son who has ADHD and Asperger's. So we needed a, one of us to be home, and we just made that decision. So. For a long time, I didn't. I didn't work in the in the in the traditional sense of working. I worked at home. I looked after our children while my husband's career, you know, progressed and we moved around the world. Um, and so, you know, it was it was wonderful when he sort of said, you know, you should do something for yourself now. The kids are in school and you've got a little bit more time. And you know, why don't you do it? Why don't you stop talking about it? Why don't you stop talking about writing and just Jolly well do it. Um, and that sort of gave me the permission to do it. Um, so that was the stimulus then? That was what? Yeah. The moment. Yeah. So he's been a great sport. He doesn't read fiction. Um, so, <laughs> so I cannot, I, I, I'm very lucky. He's been a great supporter and sponsor of my, of my work, even though he doesn't really like fiction. <laughs> right, right. Okay, but he likes you, and that's important. So he's supporting yeah. you, and you're, you know, if, if you're happy, then that's that's the main thing, isn't it? I, you know, Steve, I, I think I'm just thinking about your question about you know what you know how have I been formed, and how has my childhood and my upbringing formed me? And one of the things that I think is really true about my upbringing is that mum and dad were involved in everything, so they were on the PTA and they were, you know, the swimming, dad was a swimming club coach and mum was, you know, you know, they, we did St. John's and we did, you know, girls brigade and we, you know, they were the netball team coach and they were on the church committees and, you know, every jolly thing we did and there were four of us and we were music lessons and, you know, school plays and camps and whatever it was, my parents were doing it they were in there in every committee dad used to say you know you'd go to these committees and it'd be the same people you know like the the swim club and the rugby club and the, you know they'd always be the same people the community-minded people to say well I'm in it I want something I might you know we're we're doing this thing and we're enjoying it and we want to be part of this community so we will serve the community we will help and and that is something 
that, that I have carried, and I know my siblings are the same, have carried through our lives, you know. Um, if you want something and you, you are interested in something, then you get involved and you do the thing. So you build the community around it. And that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned coming through my childhood from my parents is that is that community, that sense of community. I think when you think about writers, you think we're just sitting at our desk and we're just plugging along, putting our stuff on the page. But actually, you know, writing is about community and, you know, you need people to read your work and help you, you know, help help you hone it and polish it. Um, it's not a, it's not a very, it's not an entirely solitary process. Um, and then you've counterintuitive. Well, it's not counterintuitive. It's, it's counter what people would think. You, I think you're you're right. You've said that. You know, you would think that that's what it is. Locking yourself away uh, in order to be able to think and create, and you don't come out until until you've got some work done. It it's, it feels like when you're not a writer that that's would be the process. So it's it's interesting that it's the opposite of that. Yeah, um, especially when you're learning, it is it isn't. You know, I have probably six or seven mentees at any one time. <laughs> and, of course, you know that mentees are forever. So, you know, even mentees I had 10 years ago are still contacting me about things. I have mentors of my own, um, you know, who I still sometimes contact. You know, what should I do? Do you, you know, what's my, you know, around my career and progression? And, um, you know, so, you know, you need people around you. You need other editors. You need you need contributors if you're putting together an anthology. You know, you need to talk about trends and and topics and tropes and the things that you're writing about. So being part of those communities is extremely, extremely important. And so, and I just, you know, there's this, there's a little bit of what's in it for me attitude that people take when they join things. You know, why should I pay the membership? Because, you know, what's in it for me? And I don't see it that way. Um and I think that's mum and dad's, really, their ethic that, that's coming through because their, their attitude was, well, you know, you can pay your membership and if you don't do anything, that membership money is so the people who are doing things and putting together activities or doing, creating the services that are part of that community can do the thing. Um, but you, you also can jump in and do the thing so that the community thrives and, and it's critical mass, isn't it? You're part of a critical mass. So I think it's really, it's not about kind of what's in it for me, but I have to say that by doing that, I have generated so much joy and been able to network with these amazing communities who've supported me, lifted me. So, you know, I'm working a lot in Asian women's horror, you know, and raising the voices of new writers and they're doing the same for me, you know. Hey, have you read Lee Murray? You know, she's 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 a voice in Asian women's horror and New Zealand horror. And you know, I'm grateful for that. I go to conferences and I meet people, readers, and, and, and it's word of mouth, isn't it? How many times we say, "Have you read this book? This is fantastic. I think you'll like this." Mm. Um, and and then meeting publishers. Oh, you're writing things that I that I'm that I'm interested in and sometimes when they just meet you because you're busy you know being the volunteer oh I remember meeting her maybe I'll read what she's written mm. and and that's how things 
grow. So community is insanely important, especially Mm. when you're a writer. And to a certain extent, there is a little bit of bums on seats, you know, Um, but there's also this element of, well, once you've done the work, you know, it needs to be polished. You need to get lots of input, sensitivity readers and that kind of thing, editors. And then, you know, you've got to get it out there. Who Who's interested? So who else is, you know, what are the other writers writing this kind of work? Is there similarity in your readership? You know, that kind of thing to sort of get the work out there. Where will I best present it? So it's, it's yeah, it's never, you're never on your own. Um, and I think if you are on your own, I think it's a very lone. It would be a lonely place. You need to connect because it can be very lonely. Um, you could make it lonely. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm reminded of a couple of things there. One was I interviewed um, my old uh, professor uh, David McKee from the University of Waikato a few weeks ago, and and he said I asked him what you know what was sort of uh, his approach to life, if you like, was to give more than you receive. And, and then he was told, so he told that to someone and they turned around and said, yep, yeah, and I bet you've never succeeded, have you? And he says, no, they're right, because the more you the more you put out there, you're not doing it to receive, but the more you get, you, you seem to get back. totally do. And that's kind of what you're describing there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not, you don't do service to, to um, in order to get, it's not that what's in it for me attitude, but those things come back in spades. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm walking proof of that, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't think if I hadn't engaged with the horror community, international horror community, I would be where I am today because they've supported me and, and yeah, exactly that. It's exactly yeah. that. And so are you saying, Lee, then, that you were, you were kind of taught that, if you like, or learned that uh, from your parents? Yeah, totally modelled by my parents. They were everywhere. Yeah. They were on everything. They were on everything. You know, they were the treasurer of this and, you know, the secretary of that. They were everything. And there were four of us and we all did multiple activities and they were everywhere. They were everywhere. Um, and, and I, you know, and they, they modelled that in their own lives, you know, professional organisations and um, they were both, involved in professional organisations and book groups and, you know, their own interests as well and um, rowing clubs and sailing clubs and, you know, those running clubs, you know, they were just in everything and they – and I think that that community is everything. Community is everything and kindness is everything, you know, at the end of the day and those things make me happy. And now when I – I think back over my life and what are the things that I've achieved that I'm really, really proud of. And one of the things is, you know, I have some service awards from the New Zealand Speculative Fiction um, Writers Group, um, from Tauranga Writers, which is New Zealand's longest, um, you know, longest standing writing group um, supporting writers. And and I'm a life member there and a life member of Specfic NZ. And I've been, in the last couple of years, I was given... Um, the H- International Horror Writers Mentor of the Year Award. And to me, I can I, I know if Dad's looking down on me, he'll be going, that's the thing he's most proud of. Mm. I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I know that of all the things I've done, that's the thing he'll be most proud of, that I've, I've reached out and helped other people and given them mm. a chance to get a, you know, get a step up the ladder. And um, that makes me just... 
yeah, really proud. And when I think of the names that I'm that I'm standing there against, you know, you know, not against, but with, you know, um, people like Linda D. Addison, who's, you know, a black horror poet. And, you know, poetry is not a big genre. And she is the first black woman to receive this award. She's a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Um, so, so being in the ranks of someone like Linda Addison, uh, just incredible, Tim Wagoner, um, oh, just some names that just incredible people who have given so much to to horror and to the community, and and that makes me so proud. So yeah, that's probably probably one of the, those those service awards for you know for for being part of the community. You know, it's like you know I liked your stuff, and 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 I said this is great, and and they gave me an award for it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like wow, um, but those are the things I'm very, very proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, it sounds like that would be the thing that's core to your family, and so your father. Yeah, would be it very is proud. definitely core to our yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, can I can I ask? I think there's there's something here I want to explore around uh, the comment you said about your your husband and partner um, David. Is that right, David? David said, you know, just go. Right. Stop talking about it and go right. So you were obviously talking about it. Hmm. Um, I'd like I'd like to explore that a little bit because I'm sure that there are lots of people and, and in fact most of us at some point in time or other have wanted to do something, but maybe there are things that have uh, fear maybe has got in the way of us doing it. And I'm just interested to explore what how long you were talking about doing it for. You know why you were talking about it. What was driving you towards wanting to do that, but also what was preventing you from that? Yeah, uh, that's probably a really good question, and I think it's probably me that whole self doubt, imposter syndrome. I, you know, writers a lot of writers suffer from it. Um, so yeah, I just I don't know. What is this my story to tell? What 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 have I got to say that's important that that anyone would want to listen to um you know I I guess yeah I, I I don't know um I got sort of tied up in that idea of write what you know you you often hear that as a writer you should write what you know but actually I think you should write what you what you're passionate about and I you know so so I ended up writing about New Zealand you know because I love this country and I love the landscape and the people and um, and so, so that was kind of where I sort of started. I kind of wrote about the things that I loved. Um, I sort of moved away from the, so much what I know because I can find out. You know, you can find out as a researcher. You can find out. But I, I just was so I moved into writing what I what I'm passionate about, and and a lot of that is you know exploring those intersections between myth and culture and. Um, um, the things that really concern us, the things that really are part of our everyday that make us, that that grip us, you know, the things, the stories that we're reading in the newspaper, the things that really matter to us, you know. Um, so but why did I not start before? I, maybe I was just holding on to those ideas of I shouldn't be doing this and I, I, I should be getting a real job and I should, 
you know, um, maybe. And I'm just Which grateful to him for giving mm. me the permission and say, mm. maybe I thought, you know, I should be contributing financially. Um, I, and I still feel that sometimes, you know, that I should be contributing more financially than I am to to our to our family, you know, for our family's sort of well-being. And um, so I think, and, and also, can I do it? You know, because you, you know, can I do it? You know, so because... Writing is all about rejection. You're rejected by, you know, publishers and literary agents and editors and, you know, there'll be 800 submissions for 20 spaces on an anthology, you know, by magazine editors. You're just rejected everywhere. You're, you know, readers send a review. They hated your work. They loved it. They hated it. You know, it's just, you're just rejected everywhere. And in New Zealand, you know, there's no publishers for horror. Nobody publishes horror. None, so you, you've got to go somewhere else. And, of mm. course, I write horror, you know. It's like, oh, you know, I, I tell the story um, because horror is one of those things we, we love to pretend we don't like. So, you know, it's like it's like romance books, you know, the bodice rippers and, and horror books and, and dad joke books, you know, mm. joke books. You hide them under the bed, right? But if you're reading War and Peace or you're reading, you know, um, 80,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or you're reading Eleanor Catton's, you know, um, The Luminaries, well, that's literary fiction, so that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's okay. But, oh, no, well, you hide. I think Kindle's made a difference, right, because you can't see what people are reading. <laughs> they can't see the cover. <laughs> but actually, you know, horror is is actually sort of a dirty secret, isn't it, amongst readers? We don't – we so – so literary fiction, a lot of the time, I think, is what we pretend to read, and horror fiction is what we pretend not to read. Right. Okay. So, so writers are rejected. You know, horror writers are really rejected. You know, mm. um, and being an Asian horror writer, you know, uh, you know, or a Kiwi horror writer, we're sort of stuck off on the end of the world where there's no publishers, so we've got to take our work overseas. Um, yeah, and there's this kind of literary. Um, sort of genre divide, you know, people say, well, I, I don't really, I'm not going to read, it's genre, it's, it's got to be rubbish, you know? Right. So actually, it's, it's tricky. And personally, I have nothing against literary fiction. You know, I read a lot of literary fiction. Um, but, you know, I think part of the problem there is that we're all fighting over the same money and there isn't much money, you know, in terms of the 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 bucket of funding, for example, for creative work, there's almost nothing. And genre fiction almost never gets a look in. Romance fiction gets never gets a look in. They do their own thing. Um, and so, you know, it puts it sort of pits people against each other, which is silly because we're all the same community. You know, we're all writers looking to tell yeah. stories that resonate for people, that give, that help people make sense of the world. And, and find meaning in their lives or just entertain them and just let them escape for a wee moment from, from the things that worry them. And so, so, so writing is all about rejection. So when I, so I don't know, maybe why did I not start? I just think I felt like an imposter. Like who was I to have, you know, what did I have to say and did I, could I even do this? So maybe that was the reason. Yeah. I think you, you said it earlier, that question, Stuck with me. Can I do it? Mm. And it's a, it's a, it's a really 
deep, powerful question, isn't it? It's the thing that probably stops most people from doing lots of things. Can I do it? Because until you actually give it a go, you never know, do you? And it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, when I'm working with students, and I do quite a lot of work with students. In fact, I was the the co-convener of Young New Zealand Writers, and for a decade we did sort of courses with students and free, you know, um, we did free to enter anthologies so students could get a chance to be published. And I often tell them, oh, it's no longer, we've just closed it because we're exhausted, but, <laughs> but I often tell students that um, there's no one other than them. You know, their story is unique in the moment. So there is no one there's living their exact life um, with their ex exact background ground and makeup and perspective and there's no one that can tell their story in the way that they can tell it no one they are everyone is has their unique view of things of the world and so even even if it's never published they should write some things down and keep them for themselves you know to get it on the page and maybe your children will read it or maybe you'll take it out in 10 years time and read it and find something there of your former self and I think so so give it a go you know don't don't feel like you have to be an imposter because you can and you might share it with someone and they might feel you know seen and they might identify with that piece of writing and it might work for them and resonate for them so you know just because, I mean, publishing's a whole different ball game, um, but there's no reason why you can't write down what you feel and how you see things and for you, yeah. you know, for you, because there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be said for just being creative. Um, and I think about the pandemic and, you know, we were all stuck in our little bubbles. And what were we doing? You know, we were doing creative things to kind of find solace and to find meaning and I think apparently zombie books took off you know apocalyptic books just <laughs> took off in the pandemic um but you know what we were doing we were we were learning to bake and we were reading books and watching movies and drawing and we call it mindfulness these days don't we and actually it was just creativity yeah. yeah yeah so the answer to the question of you know yeah I just yeah, I I don't know why I felt I needed permission, but my husband gave me permission and I haven't looked back. And I haven't asked him if it's time to stop yet either. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. was, was there an essence there of, and I'm, and I'm just thinking out loud really here, but was there an essence there of if, if your husband's saying to you, there's no reason from my perspective for you not to do this, was that kind of removing a, a, a reason or a, Maybe I've used the word excuse. I don't necessarily mean that, but you know, in your mind, the fear of going ahead—if if those start to sort of fall away, then you've kind of got to go forward, or yeah. or stop talking about it, stop dreaming about it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that I did was I said I'm a writer. I said I'm a writer. You know, like I, I that. You know, people don't say that. They, you know, that. Well, I remember saying to someone I was a writer, and they said, "Yeah, but not really. It's just what you say because you're at home, right?" And I go, "No, I'm a writer," and and I think that that's owning it. I I took the step to own it. I am a writer. 
One of the things, too, I think about women particularly is that we don't believe we can do it unless we've got the qualification. Um, you know, <laughs> and um, I don't know what that is, but um, but women tend to, I think this is true, um, that women tend to sort of be overqualified. So I rushed out to do some courses. So I started off doing some novel writing courses with North Tech Polytech. So because I didn't think I knew anything and I read a million books about how to write a novel and 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 to be honest, you know, even now I still don't know how to write a novel. And I've written, you know, 12 or 15. And I, because every time I sit down, I have this imposter syndrome, like, oh, my God, how do I write a novel? Because it is a creative endeavor. So there are some general principles for writing a novel. But to be honest, it all happens in your head. Well, at least for me. I know people use novel writing software and they order their chapters and they use the hero's journey and the four-act structure and all of that kind of thing. But in my head, I kind of just – I write the beginning – Often I write the end, I know kind of where it's going, I might have some major plot points, but basically it's magic. It kind of happens when I sit down and it just, it's magic. I still think it's magic. I still don't know how I do it, you know. <laughs> and occasionally my beta readers will come and say, oh, I think there's a gap here. And I, oh, yeah. So I, I and then I, I realize I foreshadowed it over here at the beginning of the book anyway. It's just kind of magic how it comes together. I do not know how I do it. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like the artificial intelligence box, you know, the machine learning box where it goes and stuff goes in and it comes out and the scientists don't know how it happens. And yes, there are some general principles that they know that we know that this is how you put together a novel. But um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's magic. So every time I sit down, I feel like an imposter. So it's not gone away then? No, it's not going Despite away. Despite winning no. so many awards. and No, actually I... I was in a conference last year and I was actually invited to a, a, a panel on imposter syndrome because clearly people have read that. I mean, I still can't believe it. And the thing the thing about the awards, and, and I have four Bram Stoker, international Bram Stoker awards now. Um, I'm nowhere near Stephen King who has 12, but I have four and that's pretty good. And um, and for New Zealand, that's it's never been heard of. Um, and every time I get an award, I, I have quite a few now, um, I... I I just, I think there's a mistake and someone's going to find me out. So it makes me kind of want to work harder that I just, I feel like someone's going to read this and realize that I really didn't deserve it. And so I just, I just have to keep working harder to yeah. do better, to write better, to be better. Mm. Um, so that imposter syndrome serves me in some ways. I was going to say that, yeah. So if it's serving you, it's not necessarily a, a, a problem per se in, in that it's it's a, your kind of mechanism for continuous improvement maybe. Yeah, well, I think if you think you've made it, if you think you're the biz, then you, there's no point in writing because you're, you're not doing yeah. anything innovative. Mm. Um, yeah, I think if I thought that I had, mm. yeah, I was the top of the game, then mm -hmm. why would I... Yeah, I think I'd come crashing down very quickly because I've read some other, you know, I read other people's work and I think, wow, I wish I'd written that, you know. So I still think the my best work is the work that I haven't yet written. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there, is there an element of that, that imposter syndrome thing? Is that self-doubt? You know, not just about the process, but is there an element of 
self-doubt about you, Lee, is that, you know, so that you've written 12, 15 novels, but you're still feeling that way. Is it, you know, is it, is it deeper than just about book writing? Is there, is there a self-doubt there in general terms or? I, it's probably exacerbated by the fact that I have anxiety and have a depression, I'm, you know, um, so those, those, you know, I'm a person who cogitates and, you know, that is anxiety, isn't it? It's kind of, it's, it's a lot like editing actually, you know, when you, when you, you question everything, you revise it, you revise it, shall I have, you know, is this the right way to say things? And, you know, when you have anxiety, that's exactly what you do. You know, you think, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that, they're going to think this, they're going to think that. Um, and so I think that's probably part part of it. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't really, I wasn't diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety until I was 50. Um, so I've spent 50 years of my life wondering what the hell was wrong with me. And um, uh, and I think part of that is, you know, my dad had a, a, a little sister who was autistic. And so, you know, that there was a lot of stigma around mental illness and um, in those days. Um, and Asian cultures don't really, don't they kind of deny it. Right. And so, um, and I... I I, I don't think my parents ever thought that I had anxiety and depression, but I did have, you know, it was like, you just, you know, get on and don't have any self-pity and, you know, you just need to, you, you're very privileged and I am. I am very privileged and very lucky. So so why am I depressed? You know, those, so, but those, I think, do exacerbate those feelings of imposter syndrome. Um and on the, and then on the other hand, you know, um, I'm being more open about that, and it's a little bit like my Asian culture. I'm sort of thinking, well, this is part of me too, mm-hmm. and exploring that. Um, and I think it's interesting there. And I'm actually currently the co-chair of um, the Horror Writers Association's Mental Health Initiative, their Wellness Committee, because we're looking at destigmatizing mental illness in horror. I, horror has been Particularly film, but horror has been an area where we a lot of there's a lot of use of mental illness as a way of um, as demonising people, um, and even our language, the way we use language, we still say commit suicide instead of you know died by suicide, or um, we say someone's psycho or crazy, or so the kinds of language that we use and the way we demonise characters. So we're looking at at using, you know, and moving towards more positive representations of mental illness in horror. So just because you have a mental illness doesn't make you the monster or a villain or necessarily violent or any of those things. It just means that you have an illness, you know. We we treat things so differently, you know. If you, if you have all sorts of ways, you know, for example, if you have, um, you know, if you, if you have a headache, people say, well, take a take an aspirin, you know, um, um, because, you know, you'll feel better. But when we talk about mental illness, oh, don't take medication, that's terrible. You know, so we have this, there is a lot of stigma. 
So, um, so in 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 the Horror Writers Association, we're trying to address that stigma, not through therapy, of course, um, but but through writing more positive representations of of mental illness in our horror writing, um, and also because writing and creativity, as we've just said, is such a great way to to actually express yourself and actually sort of. Um, it's it's a great way to actually recover because it's it's getting stuff down on paper. It's a way of analysing, you know, looking at it from a from a point of safety, um, and it is it's very cathartic to be able to write those demons onto the page mm-hmm. and sort of separate yourself from them. So yeah, so I think the imposter syndrome has a lot to do with that. Um, I'm not saying that everyone who has imposter syndrome suffers from depression or anxiety, but I know that that hasn't helped. And again, when you get a rejection, how do you mm. deal with that rejection? You know, I mean, that can just really throw you for a loop if you've. Um, yeah. And writing is a lot about rejection. Yeah, you said that before, and that was the connection I was making in my mind is that if you're suffering from anxiety and you're heading into or you're not heading into, you're, you're deep in a, a career, a writing career, where it's all about rejection. How, how does that play out? Yeah. How do you manage that? That is really tricky. And isolation is an issue, isn't it? Because, you know, we know when, we're, when we have anxiety and depression that if you're isolated, it's worse. If you, if you, don't, if you, you pull yourself back from the community, it's worse. You know, all of those kinds of things and you become... It's it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? You know, I'm useless, so therefore I will pull back and so nobody sees what you're doing. You don't have any any community around you. So it's almost sort of contradictory, isn't it? So almost I have to make sure I go out and get that community, you know, that social connection. And, you know, to a certain extent, this whole Zoom mentality, you know, the non-in-person thing has been kind of helpful. Um, because you can still be in your safe little living room and also be in a community by zooming in on panels and you can't see the thousands of people, or well, not thousands, but you can't yeah. see the other 60 people in the room. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like you and I here talking here, Steve. There's just you and I, right? Yeah. Um, but maybe some other people might watch this and I can pretend that, that it's just you and you and I. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a way of having community with with some safety, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole virtual world of community has been helpful for me a little sure. bit. Okay. Um, but yeah, I do. I you know I I when I'm at conferences, if I feel overwhelmed, I go back to my room. I scroll through the internet for pictures of puppies. Um, okay. You know, um, yeah. I will go for a walk. I do the things that I need to do to feel more connected, uh, more, no, more grounded is the word. Um, And then I, but I try not to isolate myself too much because I think that community is how I've succeeded because, well, as I said before, community is just so vital for me as a writer. And, um, but also it's part of the problem (laughs) when you're anxious, when you have social anxiety, it's like, Oh, um, so I always break out in hives when I go to a conference. It's just, I just have to live through it. I just have to get through it. Um, so it is a bit of, but I suppose knowing as well, awareness is is half the battle in anything, isn't it? I think I always, 
that's just my opinion on things as well. I was going to ask you about, so you said that you went through your first 50 years of life, not, I suppose, not knowing uh, the what diagnosis, it what it was, but, but something felt different or something felt, how did it feel? How did you know well, that there was something there? I think it was just there? I'm one of How those kids normal. that just was, you know, overthought things, and you know, right. um, and also I've got a I've got a mole on my shoulder. It's kind of a um, it's an Asian, it's a Chinese thing, you know. You carry the burdens of the world on your shoulder, you know. Snake. I'm born in the year of the snake, so you know we're overthinkers. Okay. Um, so there's all these kind of cultural aspects that sort of play into it as well, and of course my dad. You know, coming from a family where his own sister, you know, had a mental illness and, you know, at the time there was, you know, shock treatments were being discussed and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it was – so he had his own concerns around that because he lost his sister. She was only 12. Um, and so he still was traumatised about that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is that. So they just – I don't think they they ignored it. They just – didn't see it in the same in the same way, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really. I didn't have a name for it. I just thought it was me. Just you, yeah. Yeah, well, it, and it kind of is. It is, you it? Know, yeah, <laughs> and um, and um, and I did a lot of running for a lot for many years, and I think that that actually helped. So when so for for a long time, I sort of held it at bay by running because I would run every day or every other day. So you know, when you're physically active, that helps with anxiety and depression. Um, it's meditation on the hoof. You know, I just be thinking. You know, mm, it's mm. it's time out. It's meditation yeah. through through movement, and also I had a big social network through running. Um, you know, I would run with friends and people and talk and chat. And I'm a very slow runner, just like I'm a slow writer. So, you know, it was great. You're in the back of the pack and you're just enjoying the day. And um, so four hours of chatting, you know, that's social time as well. So that was possibly quite therapeutic. And then when um, and then when I injured myself and wasn't able to run, I really fell. I really um really got very isolated and that was when I was diagnosed with um, with anxiety and depression and I so I've learned a bit from that and I mean what obviously therapy is is individual and and you have to see your own doctor and get your own advice but for me um, I know that writing helps me and going out for walks helps me and scrolling puppies on the internet did the diagnosis itself help you like to understand yourself and one, and then once you understood a bit more yeah. able to work out what you needed to do to manage it yeah I, I came up a bit of, against a bit of stigma um you know when you start saying you have it and you know you know I know people will say oh she's that woman with anxiety and depression not she's that writer or um mm. so I just mm. So, you know, so I am open about it because I think shared awareness is, is helpful, you know. Yeah. Um, when you say, oh, I suffer from anxiety and depression in horror writing circles, you're amazed about how many people come out of the woodwork and say, yes, and I, I use writing to to help me process this, this, some of the stuff as well. So, mm. um, yeah. You've, you've written something on that I've read. Or it was you, did, you had some conversations with a lot of writers about... Yeah, well, I was part of the Headlands project. That's, that's um, the one, sorry. Yeah, yes, I, that's um, and and I was the first to bring a panel on, you know, um, 
um, horror and and mental illness and horror into um, into the horror writing community, international horror writing community. And I think that's become a standard now because it's a big discussion. There are a lot of elements to to look at, you know, addiction, horror, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's. Um, I'm proud of that work. Um, I think we've got a long way to go in horror because it is an area where um, people have been stigmatised and some of the portrayals of uh, villains are often, you know, psychopathic, you know, demon, de demons and, you know, serial killers. And, you know, there are a lot of, um, lot of writers lean into some of those things. So we need to be careful about how, they, how we address those. And, um, Mm. Yeah. I, there's so many questions I want to ask, um, but I want I want to ask one about horror. What, why horror? What, what you know when you, you decided you were you know ten years old you wanted to write, and that's throughout your life you've you've been creative and writing. What what maybe can you? I don't know whether you know, but you know how did you end up in, horror. in the horror space? Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, I. I, I have told the story before. So I actually, I really fell into that whole you should write what you know thing at the beginning of my career. So I was right, I was running marathons and I'd run 25 marathons and I'd train people to run marathons at the time. And I thought, you know what, I'll write about marathons because I, I, I know something about that. Um, and so I wrote this really breezy chiclet novel. Um, please don't look it up. <laughs> no, um, it was my first piece, first piece, first thing that I wrote really, um, and and I'm proud of it in the sense that I learned so much from that. You know, I learned a lot of what not to do. You know, I mean, everyone should self-publish and do a first novel like that because it's so important to to have those make all the mistakes. I made every mistake, um, but that said, I I I learned how to write you know I, it was my practice novel if you like and um but at the end of that time and and at I didn't really understand that chiclet was as a genre was kind of dead in the water um and because I was just writing what I knew and I uh and I, I did write about New, in New Zealand and set in the bay and running up the mountain things that I'd done so that was kind of that was fun but I realized that I wanted to write um things that would kind of resonate for me, that were more important than just the story, the, the barriers in that particular story were things like, oh, I'm not allowed to eat cupcakes and, oh, you know, I have to go to the gym first thing in the morning and, you know, um, oh, how am I going to get up this hill and, you know, oh, my lycra tights are running up my bottom and things <laughs> like that. And, 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 I'd, and they were fun, but they were not what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about things that mattered to people that mattered to me, that, that things that frightened me, things like climate change and feminist issues and, you know, um, how are we going to protect our, our, um, our native forests and, you know, all of these, you know, just these sorts of things that really concern us, you know. What about people in, you know, I'm working on, I'm, I want to write something about, you know, Cyclone Gabriel now because, wow, you know, the, the impacts to people's lives, things that frighten us and, Things that frighten us is horror, you know, and, and and I know a lot of people think horror is haunted houses and serial killers and and there's not a lot of that in my writing. You know, what frightens us is different depending on who you are and where you live and what your background is. So for me, 
horror is some of the cultural pressures that I feel, um, the sort of the way I'm sort of shoehorned into certain places and also squeezed into certain places. Um, horror for me is is well, I'm totally petrified of heights, so that's that's horror for me. Um, horror for me is small spaces, is earthquakes, is you know those those kinds of things, what might happen to my children. Um, and I think those things resonate for lots of people. Right now, I know there's lots of concern about in the, in the United States of, about, you know, um, pulling back on reproductive rights for women. And so I've been writing some things around that. So the things that really frighten people. And, and I think that's what people want to read so they can process it and think about it and analyse it in a way that has a little bit of safety. We stepped back a little bit mm. from it. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that's, so that's how I moved into horror. I think it's a, a grown-up genre. I think everyone eventually gets there. I think, you know, I, 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 I truly do. I think that literary horror has those elements where you are looking inside yourself at, at, at you know, at, at major life traumas, and so there is an element of horror in that. Horror is a, is a genre that transcends all other genres. You can have a historical novel with horror in it. You can have a romance with horror in it. You can have, um, you know, sci-fi with horror in it. So it's like romance and and it's all those things that you hide under the bed, romance and horror and humour, you know. All of those things transcend all those other genres. Doesn't matter what it is, mm. um, you can have those elements in there. So, so my work doesn't look necessarily traditional, um, and I think that's fine because I'm unique in the sense I live here in this beautiful country with these amazing spaces to include in my horror. And why wouldn't I? You know, geysers and you know forests and just you know lonely pasture and beautiful beaches. Why wouldn't I use New Zealand in my fiction? Mm. Um, we've got haunted spaces and just, you know, of course we have. We've got insular ideas as well as great progressive ideas. So I want to use New Zealand. And, you know, I just, yeah, horror is the place. Um, I, I, I've just got this opportunity to explore all of these unique, this our unique perspective here down under um, with also my Asian culture thrown in and um, the fact that I'm, you know, have issues with anxiety and depression and lots of other people feel those things. So I feel like I've got, now I, I feel less that imposter syndrome of is it my story and what have I got to say because clearly I have got things to say that must also impact other people because if I'm frightened by them, other people must also be frightened by them unless I'm totally weird possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with, with things that are going on in the world you, you mentioned about going to conferences I can't remember whether that was before the interview started or during but you talked about going to conferences and and being in that community and seeing what's what's happening in the space at the minute where the direction of things and where people are thinking with what's going on in the world there's all sorts of things going on in the world at the minute being a writer do you have to be mindful of all of that stuff from a from a whom you know who might I you know I, and I'm asking this question probably because my my opinion at the minute is that I, I feel like I can offend people without actually even opening my mouth at the minute. There's we're, we're quite a sensitive kind of world, and 
there's all sorts of things going on and is there a, you know is there a need to be mindful of what's happening in the world so we don't offend with our writing yeah uh, it is an issue isn't it and look that is what sensitivity readers are for and research and beta readers um are for um i think it is a tricky area because people, you know, are, we're talking about own stories and things like that. Um, and it is a tricky area. Thankfully, New Zealand has the Bill of Rights, um, which allows artists and creatives to to express themselves in ways, you know, uh, um, as they like, providing it's not hate speech or anything like that. But I do think we have a responsibility to look very carefully at our work and make sure that we've researched it and, and had a number of readers read it and make sure that things are not, you know, I don't mean sanitising, um, but I mean being authentic um, and careful about how we put work out there. And again, this is the same issue with, with mental illness, you know, that some people with mental illness may be violent, but it is not... A given, you know, and so that's been, and, and and that's the stigma that has come with, um, that has come with in the past with with horror and mental illness. So yes, we do need to be careful about how we address our, you know, how what what we address in our writing and how we approach it. But I think that that research, very thorough research, um, getting plenty of readers on, you know, eyes on it and getting feedback and understanding. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think there's some people, like I, if you write a serial killer and you're not a serial killer, you know, are you, a, you know, a fair, serial killers could be offended. No, I, I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, it is flippant because, you know, we are, they're fictional characters. So, but we do draw on things. So, yes, I, I think it's really, it is a, it's a very tricky area. Um, and I think a lot of writers feel hamstrung by that. Um, I it is a, it is a tricky one. I mean, I I write some male characters, and I'm not male, so should I do that? Y you know what I'm saying. Mm. So I, but I get plenty of male readers to make mm. sure that I make my vo the voices are authentic and the characters behave in the way that they ought to. Um, and of course, I will put put attitudes into those into those characters' voices um, that that character might have might not be mine. Um, and it might not be likable, but it might be appropriate to that character. Mm. One of the ways I get a, you can get around it, um, well, not get around it, but one of the things I do, particularly in my Into the Mist series, um, Kane McKenna Adventures, is I use a mosaic approach. So that's that's when you don't write the story from one person's point of view. So you, so I might have four or five key characters who tell the story. Um, and the main character will be the main person on, on the page. But I might have this other character giving their point of view on what's happening. And so you get these different perspectives because that is how the world is, isn't it? Mm. We all see things differently. So in a story, that's also a great way to do it is to say, well, there's this person with this attitude and there's this person with that, this attitude and the reader can make their own mind up. So that's a, a cunning, yeah. it's a cunning trick <laughs> <laughs> that novelists use. Is, is the research, I mean, you're a scientist, you've got a um, background in science. Research, yeah. Um, is the research aspect of writing 
a, a big part for you that you enjoy. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's really dangerous, actually, because that's probably why I don't write very much. Because I get down these too busy researching <laughs> research rabbit holes. And I know people who say, just leave a space and come back to it. I'm like, no, <laughs> it never works for me because I I want those things to feature in my writing and be, you know, I want the reader to be satisfied and have a really engaging read. So, yeah, I, I do tend to go down little rabbit holes. I often contact people, you know, oh, could you tell me about this? You know, call people up and say, you know, um, if you're writing – Dan Rabitz and I wrote a series based on, um, based on, well, uh, yeah, we wrote a sort of crime noir, supernatural crime noir series set in Auckland. But we wanted, we, we interestingly, in the third book, we wrote a, a massacre, um, or a sort of gang massacre on the wharf of Auckland. And at the time, we had to stop writing. We were in the middle of writing when... Um, the shootings happened in Christchurch and we just kind of felt we'd done something a little bit prophetic. It was quite, we were just so, we, we were blithely writing this this narrative, you know, it's fictional, it was fictional, it was fun, you know, and then suddenly this event happened in New Zealand that we were sort of thinking that doesn't happen here. So for us, it was horror. We were writing it on the page. And then this happened. It was real-life horror for real people. It was just devastating. We had to take a hiatus from the novel because we just did not know how to do it justice. Um, and then when we came back to it, we we actually got some advice from, you know, um, forensic, because, forensic police officer and also you know, from um, Maori um, advisors because what what did that look like in New Zealand? You know, what what's the what are the rules around, you know, um, human remains and and you know, grieving families and that kind of thing. So yeah, you do we hadn't seen that really in New Zealand. So what happens, you know, when there are mass casualties of mm you know, from a certain culture and what about those cultural beliefs. And so there was a lot of work to be done just, first of all, processing those things and also how, what happens in New Zealand. And New Zealand was still learning that, right? We, we didn't know um, that probably there were some procedures in place, but we hadn't seen it happen. We hadn't seen it played out in real life, and then it did, you know. Um, so sort of we're a bit lucky I'm not saying that that sounds that sounds very flippant, and I don't mean that. Um, but we were we had this opportunity to tap into some research and some some experts to sort of get a feel for what might actually happen in that mm. case, um, so that our writing was authentic, um, yeah, based on reality. Yeah, um, but enough to be plausible. You don't have to put all of all the rules in. Uh, there's a, the thing is with writing is that you're actually liable. Okay, so the, in your contract as a pub, as a writer, the publisher will say, you know, anything, any methods or whatever, anything, you're liable, you know, we're not liable. The publisher's not liable. It's the author that's liable. So here's, here's a story. So uh, in Battle of the Birds, which is a little novel for children, I have a scene where, two, where the children make a... Um, a hot air balloon out of um, out of bark, out of tree bark, um, um, you know, pounded tree bark. Now, 
whether that's plausible or not. Um, and they fly it to White Island. This was well before we had um, our um, disaster at White Island. And, um, and, and they used, you know, and when they came back, they used the, the hot gases and what have you from White Island to come back. It, it was, the story is set a thousand years ago. So, you know, and the kids love it. But the, 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 the real, reality is if some children made a balloon and tr out of using my instructions and tried to get to White Island and drowned, I am liable if, if it can be shown that they used the instructions out of my novel to try and get to what to what so so you know you do have to be careful about what you yeah. actually put in so okay so you know a molotov cocktail is, there's plenty of instructions about how to make a molotov mm -hmm. cocktail in on the internet so i'm pretty think i'm pretty safe there if i put a molotov cocktail in one of my stories but you know there is yeah you're right that you know research is really important but also just enough to be plausible and not enough to give everyone a step-by-step -step instruction about how yeah. to poison your grandmother or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes, I'm just thinking now, you know, it makes you wonder why, how many books have, have ever been written really under those circumstances, how you dare write a book or make a movie just in case you're kind of giving people instructions and you're, and you're liable. But so does that kind of, that kind of thing, does that stymie the creative process? No, no, you, you just, just have to be a little bit careful okay. and you get good editors who ask the questions mm. and, you, yeah, no, it doesn't stymie. It, in fact, it, you know, it's interesting because you want your story to be authentic so you want to include as much of that. I mean, people are thrown out of stories if the writer hasn't done their work and you think, oh, that's not how it happens or you've got the right, you know, in New Zealand we ring 111, in the US it's a different number, you know. So people are thrown out of a story if you get those little details wrong. Um, you know, military fiction, if you get the if you get the gun make wrong or something, then you're in big trouble. You know, those people are very particular about, you know, those those kinds of details. So details do make a difference to the sort of the 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 richness of your narrative. So yeah, it's important and yeah. it's also not. You know, it's just enough to be plausible um, and to make and to make your reader suspend disbelief and be carried along with the tale. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying, to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. Can I ask you then, Lee, to talk, and you've, you've talked about uh people's perspectives or 
perceptions that you know writing's not a job it's just you know, you're just at home you know you mentioned that earlier um and clearly obviously if you're not a writer um ignorance makes you sort of form those opinions what what does that creative process writing process look like because when you when we talk about research it seems like a significant portion of it that you would spend a lot of time researching you've got got to have some creative ideas you've got to develop a story right can you talk us through what that process looks like, how you come up with an idea, and then the length of time it takes to turn it into something that you can yeah. put forward? Because I think that would give people an idea of actually how much work is yeah. involved in this, you know? Um, yeah, it's tricky. So for a novel, you usually would write, you just come up with your own idea and write the novel and um and then pitch it unless it's been contracted for a short story and I get a lot of requests for short story I think I've written maybe 80 short stories and some of them when I say short stories some of them will be up to 10,000 words kind of thing um usually an editor will come to me so in the past I used to submit but now I have a bit of a name as a as a writer so they'll come to me and they'll say we'd like to invite you to be part of this work will you submit a story um, and they'll give me the general word count and the theme or the topic that they want to address. So this anthology might be about, I don't know, pumpkins at Halloween or something, and you are asked to write a story on a particular topic. So I've just done one on um, sort of the bleak midwinter, you know, Halloween-type story, for example, and you have to come up with something that the other 100 writers that are submitting or whatever don't come up with. <laughs> so first of all, they give you the theme. So that's a start point already, you know. Um, so when you say – sometimes when, you, when you're out saying, well, why don't you write a story, and it's just too big. Like any story is just too big to pull something out of the air. And I, I keep some notes of – oh, I think I'd like to write a story about that. You know, so I do keep notes about things that I think would be great story ideas. In fact, I'm really cross because I thought once about, you know, a chain letter for murders and then Adrian McKinty went and wrote it before me. Damn it. <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, so so basically the I often now get, for short stories at least, I get an idea straight away from the from the editor or the publisher. We want to write a book about this. Can you write a story about this? Yes. Right. And it needs to be horror. And I often say to them, would you like a Kiwi story? Would you like a New Zealand-themed story? Yes, we would love that. They always say yes when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Something about New Zealand fiction and New Zealand setting they love. Um, and then they'll, and then I just go away and I have to think something up. Uh, and that's really hard because, because – like I say, they might have they might have a submission call for, for five or six places on the anthology or the magazine, and they may get several hundred, sometimes several thousand um, entries. So I have to write something that isn't in that several thousand entries. It has to stand out. Um, if they've invited me, they generally will accept the story, providing it it's good, you know. <laughs> um, but they don't have to. So, you know, you don't get the contract until you often until you've written the story. Um, and then um, and then so that may involve walks and research and just thinking and just, you know, just what about what about if then I just think about can I put two stories together, two ideas together to make a story. 
Um, I have a colleague here in Tauranga who's a, a, um, who's a writer and um, a teacher and I often go for walks with her and we just say, what if, what if, what if, and um, come up with ideas. Brilliant. She's way better at ideas than me. Uh, I steal all her good ideas. Um, and so, so often creative process involves banding around, brainstorming things, um, sometimes I stand in the shower and think about it. You know, showers are really good for that. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. it is about steam, but um, yeah. a lot of writers say they stand in the shower and think about it. Um, sometimes it'll take me a week or two before I get down to writing it around my other work commitments. Um, and usually it will take me two weeks to write a short story. And let me just tell you that the standard rate for a short story is about, you know, well, it should be, it's usually, a good rate is 10 cents a word. And, um, you know, but it can be anything from one cent a word up to 10 cents a word. Um, that's for genre fiction. It's really bad. So back in the day, um, I think in um, Little Women, I think the character Joe gets, sells the story for $100 or something. It's not any better now. Right. But it's. Probably two or three weeks' work for me to write a short story. So this is where the not making minimum wage comes in. Mm. Um, and I just want to say something about USA Today and New York Times best-selling writers, okay, so which is fantastic. And I am a USA Today best-selling author, but that is for one week on the USA Today charts. You know, that is one week um, of sales and not – forever sales. So for once, if you're a five-time New York Times best-selling author, five times you've got on that one-week list. Um, it, isn't, it doesn't represent necessarily of sales across the rest of the year. You know, it might be release day sales or something like that. So I think this is kind of, well, yes, best-selling is great. Don't, don't, you know, I'm not knocking that at all. But I think people don't quite understand that actually writing you know, even very successful writers may be really struggling to, to make ends meet financially, you know, because we get maybe a dollar for every book sold, if that. Um, yeah. um, and if it's sold secondhand, we don't get anything, you know. And if it's, you know, so, and if it's returned to the, the bookstore, returns it to the, um, returns it to, to the distributor, we don't get anything. If it's reduced in sale on sale price, we don't get anything. If it's sold in a library and shared around, we don't get anything. Um, New Zealand has a public lending right, so um, if your book is a, if you've got fifty copies of a particular book in a library, then you can get um, then you can get um, um, you know a cut of that public lending right, which I think is still just two million dollars a year, which is shared around every every all the writers that have books in libraries. Mm. Um, but genre writers, well, all my publishers are overseas, so you probably won't find my books in the library. Um, so I don't get a cut of that either. So, right. you know, it's it's hard. And getting books to New Zealand, you know, you know, it's that old age-old story, you know, $5 for the book and $100 for shipping. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So it's very, very tricky. Yeah, it's tricky. Mm. Yeah. So with, with that in mind, um, why would anyone want to become an author, I suppose, is the question. You know, what do you get oh, from it? It's just the best job. I was just going to say, what do, what do you get? It's just the best job. You've, you've given me an indication of our conversation about that. And 
your energy and, and passion for it is it's not diminished in the, in the time that we've been talking. So oh, clearly there's more to it than just money. Um, oh, no, God, you don't, so I don't do it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> so so what, what is it? What, what inspires you? And what, if, any, if anyone else is listening um, who's thinking about writing or wanting to get started, why should they do it? Look, I'm a bit of a homebody, so I quite like being at home. I like writing at home. I like writing in my caravan. Um, I like that I can come to work in my pyjamas and my little dog sits at my feet or she actually sits behind my back and um, in the little small of my back between the back of the chair and me and she just wiggles in there. She likes that. Um, I, I share an office with my husband. I like being in his company. Um, and I just love being immersed in ideas and stories and narratives. I love what it does for me when you get that eureka moment and the magic comes together and the story works. And you go, oh, goodness. I love it when children write to me and say, oh, Mrs. Murray, this is just like the best book. It's my favorite book. I love this bit that I went to Hooker Falls and I saw the water or, you know, um, oh, I'm going to go and visit the Urawera Forest because... I just love your story. I love, you know, I'm gonna, I'm going to come and visit Rotorua because you wrote about it and I love it. I, I love that people say that, you know, they saw themselves in, the, in, in my writing. Um, one of my publishers say that, you know, my work with Dan Raybutz on, on um, the Path of Ra series, you know, there is no other... Maori, Asian, Kiwi writing duo in the world that, you know, that's unique and we were offering a new perspective that hadn't been seen before. That's that's special when you can say we wrote something and we told a story that hadn't been told before. Um, and there are no new stories, but there are always new angles on stories. And, um, I, you know, my, my best work is still to come. It's always still to come. I'm always looking to that that... I'm still, I'm still wanting to do something special and innovative and new and my best work is still to come and I hope it will be the next one or the next one or the next one. I always want to improve on that. So there's that element of learning and um, striving to, be, to tell something in a new and fresh and um, original way and, and I want to write the book that people can't put down. And, oh, my God, it's come to an end. When are you writing more? Oh, I have a few people in my messages saying, please, when are you going to write another Tane McKenna story? I need another Tane McKenna story. <laughs> or Tane McKenna is my book boyfriend. Or, um, you know, just those when you step up and you get an award and you just think, well, how did they – how did they? It's just how do they choose me? I mean, how? Well, I know the process, you know, but like <laughs> it's still unbelievable to me that you get that recognition from your peers and readers. Um, yeah, it's just be having the privilege of telling your stories is just huge. So I just, um, for all the downsides, um, I think it's just the best job in the world. Um, I'm super grateful. Uh, I'm working on some film work now, which is, you know, so every step of the way there's something new. I moved into poetry from prose. I'm doing some more essays um, and now film. I'm doing some screenplays. Uh, so there's just, yeah, there's just so much 
interesting, fun stuff. I'm also, you know, a mentor um, and I get to work with new writers coming through and help them shape their work. That's incredibly exciting to be, to have that sneak peek, if you like, into someone else's process and their exciting stories coming through. Um, as an editor, I get to help work with people and shape their stories and maybe give them their start in their writing career and being able to tell their stories. So I feel really privileged about that too. And that's actually really important to me. Um, so later this year, I'm um, putting out a, an anthology of um, horror writers, uh, horror stories from New Zealand um, New Zealand writers, so just New Zealand horror writers, um, as a sort of showcase, because I want people to see just what we're capable of and just how our landscape and our people and our culture sort of has its own urban myths and legends and uh, and some really spooky stuff that we can tap into. Um, so I'm just really excited about that. So that makes me feel warm and, you know, yeah, gooey. <laughs> <laughs> A horror writer that feels warm and gooey. I mean, it's it's weird, isn't it, to think that horror is a place for so much kindness and um, and and support and you know, but raising voices and everybody being represented and having a say and so if because diversity is so important, you know, and and everyone should have a say, not just the main the people that get the say, but everybody should be able to have you know, their story told and, and be heard and be seen. And if that means reading a book where there is an Asian, little Asian girl growing up in New Zealand, well, you know, you know, if, if no one else is going to write it, then I'll write it. Mm. I'll write it for you. Um, and I'm hoping that there'll be some little Asian girl out there who'll pick it up and, and read it and, and enjoy it and feel seen. Mm. Yeah. That's a great segue into... You know, legacy, if you like, the life, work and legacy um, is what this podcast is about. Um, and I think you've touched on some stuff there that I think probably will be your legacy. What, what's, the, what's the future look like? You've talked about, I mean, clearly you've, you've, you're still really excited and passionate about what it is that you do. Um, you've won so many awards that I, I lost count when I was doing my bit of research. Um, but, but what, where do you want to take this? Where do you want to go next? What does the future look like for Lee Murray? Hmm. I usually plan by the year. <laughs> What's a successful <laughs> writer? Um, I usually plan by the year and I usually have a little, a little one word that I sort of choose for the year, like wanderlust or joy or, um, you know, um, kindness was my, one of my words and that kind of got me in a lot of trouble because I ended up doing lots of work being kind and not being kind to myself and looking out for, you know, creating barrier, boundaries around my own time and my own writing space. Um, but what do I, I don't know, just more of the same, I think. I, I, I think I'm still, yeah, I'm still not quite there. I always think I would love to get in with a big publisher. I don't have a literary agent. Um, um, we don't. There are a few in New Zealand, but generally those agents don't necessarily have contacts with with the big um, horror genre um, publishers. I'd like to be in with a big publisher and maybe enjoy that that uh, being looked after a little bit more, perhaps. 
That said, I think that there's a lot to be said for small press who have been amazing to me. Um, smaller publishers have been fantastically, fantastic to me, willing to take on my work, support me. There's a little bit less downtime. There's not downtime, there's lead time. So in a small press, often there's only three or four people doing all the work. You know, there's the publisher and a couple of editors and, and maybe a publicist if you're lucky. Um, but in a large press, there'll be lots of people doing that work and distributors and, you know, um, and so you don't have to necessarily, maybe that saves you a bit of time. I don't know. I haven't been in a big press, so I don't really know. <laughs> um, but it would be nice to be able to maybe do some book launches and book tours and, and that fun stuff. Um, that said, I, you know, I'm getting involved in some documentary work around horror writing and I, um, I've been invited to be part of Madness and Writers, which is a, a series showcasing horror writers. Um, and I think at the moment I might be the only one from outside of the US, so that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. The opportunities keep opening themselves up to me and I'm, I'm just so grateful for everyone that comes along and I, I just sort of grab them with, with open arms, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Um, the film thing was completely out of the blue. I'm the screen a screenwriter on um, Grafted, which is this body horror, weird science, social commentary, um, Asian, Kiwi, all New Zealand film um, being filmed right now in Auckland um, with Sasha Rainbow, who is a BAFTA-nominated director. Um, so that's that's in production now. And I'm just really excited to be in to have had a chance to be involved with that. And that was just sheer luck, really, um, because Murray Francis, who is the producer, happened to buy a book called um, A Clear Dawn, um, which was a book, an anthology by um, Paula Morris and Alison Wong out of uh, Victoria, uh, no, maybe Auckland University Press. And... Um, with with stories and and perspectives from Asian writers in New Zealand, and I wasn't in that book. <laughs> they didn't discover me till well after the book was pretty much done. And but they wrote a line about me in the forward and said, "And Lee Murray, I can't remember the words, but something like making waves in genre fiction." So Murray Francis, the producer who read this in the forward, rushed to see who I was and found my website and went, "Oh." Well, here's someone who's right, who's a scientist, who's written, who knows about horror and also is Asian and a woman. And, well, maybe we should get her on board to help bring Sasha's perspective, you know, to the to the script. And so that was just completely out of the blue. So what's in store for me? Probably some other amazing things like that that I don't know. So I'm manifesting them now <laughs> so that they happen because what a chance for me to, have, you know, to be able to work with a team like this and be involved in my first feature film and, um, you know, and it's horror. It's all the things I love. Um, it's a fox spirit story, so it looks at at Asian, you know, mythology mm. as how it ap might apply here in New Zealand mm. and... So I'm super, super excited about the future. I'd like to retire sometime because, as I said, I'm getting close to 60 and maybe retire sometime, but not anytime soon because no, no, too much young. is happening. Young. Is, that, is that what's happening now with, with these connections? Is that that community, that, you, that sense of community and networking that your parents kind of, you know, um, 
showed you the way and influenced you. Is that is that what's paying paying a dividend is not the right. Yeah, no, term. it is. But, but it you totally know what I mean? Is, is it, is it, it coming is. back to you it that totally kind of stuff? Totally is. Totally is. Yeah. yeah, totally is. I think so. You know, um, if you yeah, if you if you were look, here's a little example. Um, I volunteered to help with the committee of Stokercom, which is the, the International Horror Writers Association annual conference. And I volunteered and I said, I don't know what I can do from over here in New Zealand, but if you, you know, need me to help, I'm happy to help. And they said, could you organise all the readings, the author readings, because they have a runner stream where everybody gets to read for 15, you know, people can can step forward to, to read for 15 minutes from their work, which is a great thing because there's nothing like hearing an author read from their own work because mm. they, they put all the inflection in. You really, you, mm. you really get a feel for their characters. Um, and so I said, oh, I can do that, you know. Um, they had a program that they were using, and, I, and he said, well, get all the people who request it and we'll have this many slots, and if you could just kind of organise it, um, that we'd be grateful. And look, you know. Everybody had to contact me. And so I had a little conversation with 60 or 70 writers, you know, and I, I matched emerging writers with more established writers so that the emerging writers got an audience because the established writers will bring the readership, mm. you know, the people yeah. to come to hear them. And, and you know, depending, maybe mixed, maybe, you know, paired people according to what they were choosing to read, talked a little bit about their work. So I had all these conversations with, you know, 60 or 70 or 80, I can't remember how many I assigned. And, you know, I was the person, just I was just the volunteer. But in, and, and then I got to meet them. And then I went to some of those readings and I got to meet those people when I went to. So, so I'm sure that some of them read me um, as a result. And, and now I know them and they're part of my community and they might think of me for anthologies or, you know, they might reach out to me for... Um, an endorsement when they put their work out and so there's the community and that's just from uh, hey can I help mm. you know um, so while while I didn't do it because I wanted something I, I got something mm. I got this massive community of 60 odd you know not everybody came up to me afterwards but but I had conversations with 60 or 70 people and most of them I didn't know so you know, yeah, go yeah, figure. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's not about what's in it for me, but actually you always get more back than you put in. So, and then I got, you know, sneak previews of what people were going to read and, and, and got to have discussions with them just online, but wonderful. Um, and it's just a tiny thing. Great experience. So with you talking about not playing uh, beyond a year, from what, you're, what you've just described there, it's not necessarily thinking ahead of some huge, great, big goal or achievement. It's, it sounds to me like you're just enjoying the journey. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I would like to write another novel. I haven't written one for about three or four years now. I've been sort of focused on expanding my skills in poetry and, and screenwriting and um, and writing a lot more short stories and that kind of thing. Um, so I would like to get back and write a novel because I feel that's my core. Um, those those meatier stories are my core. Um, but um, yeah, just I'm just enjoying the ride. You're right. It's it's not what you should do, right? I mean, really, to succeed, you should plan. You should, you know, manifest a, a goal in the future. But I just, yeah, I want to be the best writer I can be. And I think some ways it's taking the opportunities that present themselves. 
maybe I need to step back a bit more from the community, but then it's hard to because mm. they've been so there for me and they've been the source of my success, I think. Mm. The, the community, the, all the communities, the local writing community has been hugely, hugely supportive of me. Um, Tauranga writers, um, the speculative fiction community here in New Zealand have been, ex you know, extremely supportive of me. So, you know, um, it's harder to break into the literary, you know, the, the mainstream community here, partly because we don't have publishers of horror here. But um, really, I think, yeah, more of the same. I just, um, yeah, more of the same, I think. Yeah, and just yeah. see what, what comes. I can't wait to see what's coming. Yeah, that's great. I'm reminded of a, a book I read by um, Sir Ken Robinson called The Element. Um, it talks about when you're in that sweet spot of doing what you love and what you're really good at. Most of us either do one or the other. We either do what, we, what we're good at, but we don't really love it, or we do what we love, but we're not necessarily really good at it. It's, it seems to me that you are doing, you're, you are in your element. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm a, probably a better editor than I am a, than I am a writer, an author. I don't know. It just seems to be that I end up doing a lot of editing projects, and maybe that's because they're a little easier for me than the actual writing. I don't, I don't know. So my goal is always to be a writer as opposed to an editor. But the, a lot of the community work is involved around editing. And when I say editing, there's a, there's a bigger concept. It's not just looking at the words. So editing is also curating, convening, bringing together the right combination of people, um, working, about, working around how to lead the reader through an anthology through a series of stories or pieces of work in order to create a journey through the book. Um, so there, there's more to being an editor than, oh, they just check the words and the punctuation and the spelling. So I just want to put that out there because I know that there are some different yeah. ideas about what an editor is or they're just the editor. But if you are the editor of an, you know, your name is on the cover of the book as an editor, not the I did an editor, I edited this novel before it went out, but the name on the cover editor, so an anthologist, in fact, um, that is a bigger, more involved process than, um, than just write, than, than just um, editing, if you like. It's, mm. it's, there's no such thing as just editing. Everybody needs an editor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it's not just the copy edit type work. And, and, I feel like that has been a lot of my community building is around those those projects, um, you know, putting out work by New young New Zealand writers, um, putting out work by um, the, the Speculative Fiction Group of New Zealand. I've done some anthologies for that group um, and also Asian Women in Horror. Um, so, you know, I've done some work around mental health and horror. So, so those community projects um, usually involve editing and, uh, and so uh, that, they're probably not entirely true because when I write a story, I often write them for those kinds of projects as well, So, um, which build community. Um, things like, for example, the Pixel Project, I gave a, a free story to them um, 
and uh, that's, that book's it's called Giving the Devil Its Due, and it's basically a book to raise awareness of um, violence against women. So there again, a big community of people coming together to raise awareness around an issue. So, so although my real goal has always been to be an author, um, editing tends to be the area where I like, it consumes a lot of my time because those are those community projects and writing tends writing my own novels and my own books and stories tends to be more more solitary insofar as writing is solitary which it is not but um yeah so mm. yeah. I'm not making much sense I'm talking gibberish no. but um no, no. but my real goal is not to be an editor I guess but I am but my real goal was always to be a writer mm. first and an mm. editor second yeah so I've, I've got one last question. Um, I maybe should have asked this earlier, maybe, but I, I don't want to not ask it. So you you talked earlier, um, very early on in our conversation, about not sort of regretting decisions that, that were made or not following advice of your parents. You know, there's no regrets around that, that kind of thing. Um, and you also talked about, you know, everything that you've done you know, and I think I use the term building blocks, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but it's like the building blocks to where you are today. Is there any kind of regret or is there any way that you would look back and say to, to Lee um, a bit earlier in life, because, because of how you um, love and enjoy and you're passionate about the writing, once you made that leap into that, once you got that permission and once you took that step, You've never looked back. Is there an element that you wish you maybe had done that sooner? Huh. Um, I think I would be a different writer. So maybe not. Mm. Maybe I needed that maturity. Mm. Um, you don't. You don't see many prodigy writers, do you? I mean, math and science and some of those professions, you can have a prodigy, right? You can have a music. But with writing, it's all about life experience and, and you know, um, exploring things that are important to us and resonate, and that requires some... I'm not saying that young people can't do that, but what I'm saying is I felt maybe I needed that life experience in order to... To draw on. In order to draw on it and in order to make the kinds of progress that I have or to to tell the kinds of stories that I've told. So, um, But I, I don't think people should wait. I, I just think, for me, it just happened that way. I mean, I can't go back. I don't have a control Lee that I can sort of say, well, I should have started over here and I would have turned out better. <laughs> um, I'm very happy with the way that it's going. Um, I'm very fortunate. Um but um, if I had, if I had my time again, would I start earlier? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. Like you say, building blocks and everything contributes. You know, um, in some ways to 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 how you see the world. So would I have done it differently? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I. No. I don't. Th I don't. I don't think so. I'm not going to regret it. I th I'm really happy with the way it's going. Um, and and I don't think if I hadn't done science, um, I'm also a, a 
Waikato girl, <laughs> uh, if I hadn't done science, that um, that that I would be would be writing the kinds of things I'm writing. So. Okay, thank yeah. you. No regrets, no regrets. Happy, that's happy. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and um, all the all the all the things that you've got on the go. I appreciate um, you sharing your story with you with us, should I say? Um, and congratulations on all the awards that you've got. I'm sure there are many more ahead. Uh, whatever the future looks like, I'm sure you'll be um, extremely successful. Uh, continue to be extremely successful. Yep. I, I've learned a lot from listening to you today. I'm sure lots of other people will too. So I thank you for that. Um, I've got great insight into what it's like to be an author, the work of an author, um, and what goes into it. And so uh, that's been really valuable. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, Sam, and for asking those gnarly questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for asking. That's great. Thank you very much. Cheers. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing from our guests who are living a life that is a story worth retelling. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation, and I summarize them here. Firstly, I'm sure you'll agree that the conversation with Lee was wonderful. What an amazingly inspirational lady she is the high levels of energy, I just found that to be infectious. I could have listened to her all day. It was literally like she was telling me a story, which isn't always the case in these episodes. Lee has such a passion about writing and editing. A passion for storytelling. She's clearly found her element, and she's living it every day. Something many of us wish we could do. Lee told us, that she'd wanted to be a writer since growing up with her storytelling dad, telling stories in the car, not only encouraging her and her siblings to get involved in those stories, but also probably encouraging them to read and disappear into great books. When she had proclaimed she wanted to be a writer at the age of 10 years old, her dad advised her that she needed to get a real job first, something that a young person could have easily taken offence to, sulked about and lost her enthusiasm for a dream. But Lee, she didn't do any of that. She trusted her father, trusted his advice, and followed it without question. And clearly that paid a dividend. Because as Lee states, it's not that young people can't write good stories, far from it. But the wisdom that comes from experience, it's that that helps achieve a different level of authentic storytelling. And that often comes with years. When the time was right, Lee took the plunge. Now, it wasn't an easy choice. She needed the backup and support of her husband, and let's, let's say, it's fair to say, she needed a nudge from him too. He'd probably had enough of Lee talking about becoming a writer and not actually taking the steps to achieve it. And life's a bit like that, isn't it? When I talked about Lee being in her element, doing something she loves and is clearly good at, we're often not sure what our element is. Maybe fear, which is what Lee writes about, is the thing that prevents us from opening up and admitting to ourselves what our element could be. And in turn, we never obtain the support and backing to help make that decision, to take that plunge. And what are we missing out on? Well, I think as adults, we tend to listen to all the no's we've had across our lives and immediately dismiss the plunge as ridiculous and far-fetched. 
but that's possibly where happiness lies. Despite being an author, not paying well, Lee feels that her job is the best in the world. So clearly it's not just all about money. On a different note, Lee discussed the topic of representation. I have to say this got me thinking, not just during the interview, but ever since. I've been somewhat ignorant about this until now, but when Lee spoke of being a child growing up in New Zealand, where there weren't many kids like her with mixed race parents, she didn't see herself or anyone looking like her anywhere. And that wasn't just in the playground at school, on TV, in books, magazines, papers, anywhere. She wasn't represented. Now, Lee says it's getting much better, of course, these days, but there's still a way to go. This is why it's important for Lee to be recognised and acknowledged as a female Asian horror writer, paving the way for future generations to tell their stories. Another important lesson Lee shared with us was the influence of both her parents in demonstrating a sense of community. They were involved in everything, for their own interests, running clubs and the like, as well as those of their children. If there was a need to be on a committee or a working group, or just turning up and volunteering on the day, they were there. This taught Lee that being an active member of the community was important. And she's grown up with these values, and interestingly, it served her well, despite not doing these things for the purpose of seeking a return. And at this point, I was reminded of the interview with Emeritus Professor David McKee, where he talked about his philosophy of giving more than he receives, but that he was finding it hard to achieve. Neither Lee nor David are the kind of people who would ever give in order to receive, far from it. But it seems that the benefits of being willing to give are numerous. Lee became emotional when she described that her award for being a mentor would have been the biggest thing her father would have been proud of her for, which shows how important serving the community is to Lee and her family. The final point I want to discuss from Lee's interview was the presence of imposter syndrome. As Lee advised, she'd suffered from anxiety and depression for most of her life, but didn't know what it was until her diagnosis when she was 50. Clearly, this plays a role, especially when, as Lee described, writing is the industry of rejection. Despite writing so many books, essays, poems, and being an editor for so many pieces of work, every time Lee sits down to write, she feels like she's an imposter. Who is she to write a novel? It just shows that winning all of those awards certainly hasn't gone to her head, and her humility is still intact. Lee said that this has actually served her to an extent. It helps her keep her grounded and also drives her to improve her craft each time she dives into another piece of work. Maybe a little bit of self-doubt is beneficial for all of us in preventing overconfidence creeping in. Despite feeling the way she does, it's not prevented Lee from doing what she loves. It takes courage to overcome anxiety, depression, and keeping a lid on the imposter syndrome especially in a career where rejection is expected. She's not just persisted, but she's excelled. And maybe overcoming those things were what she needed for her, her own personal journey, but also to be the very best that she can be. And who knows, it may have helped her become the award-winning author that she is today. Hopefully you've been able to take many insights away from this interview that you can apply to some aspect of your work, life, and legacy. Use it. Share it with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching, and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which of course is necessary if we are to enhance our own life's work. I hope that you're happy, safe, and successful, 
in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.